I'd like to ask you a very simple question this morning. And that is, have you ever been to Gethsemane? Most times when you hear a question like that stated, if you're even familiar with the word, you think about that place and you say, well, no, I've never been to Gethsemane. I've known of people who have had opportunity to go to what we would call the Bible lands. They tell me that as they've been around those Bible lands and taking tours and sorts and things, that they have encountered a garden known as Gethsemane. But I myself have never been there. And so I want to encourage you to think about it this morning and consider that you have been there. At times we have all been to Gethsemane in one sense. You say, how can that be? Friends, Gethsemane, even on the map today, cannot accurately be located, although many have suggested they have found it. But Gethsemane, when it comes to an emotional or a spiritual place, is founded oftentimes by all of us, if even it be for a moment in our lives. You see, for Jesus Christ, the man who was in Gethsemane physically, Jesus was not only there physically, he was there emotionally because for him it was the most trying time of his entire life. It was the most terrible time. Of his entire life. When he had to endure. As he called it the cup. That would be passed upon him. As he would prepare his mind now. To die for all of mankind. The agony that he saw there. The pain that he felt. The things that he would have to endure. Even there emotionally. Far before anything physical. Would ever occur under his body. Jesus was in. Gethsemane. Friends, I think about the things that have taken place that have affected this congregation even in the past week. And in my mind, this congregation must be, in some way at least, in Gethsemane over the death of this great brother in Christ. A soldier of Christ, he certainly must have been and was. One who represented before you faith and what was the ideal of what it was to be. To have faith in this life, a man who will be greatly missed. And in that way and in that sense, you may be finding yourself this morning in Gethsemane just trying to grasp hold of some of the memories of such a man as that. It's a difficult time. It's a trying time. It's a troubling time as it would have been for Christ. But you know, you don't have to experience death in order to experience Gethsemane. For example, there are some who have experienced Gethsemane in their lives today, but simply because of disease. They deal with certain illnesses, whether it be cancers or certain things to do with the heart or other parts of the bodies that seemingly have failed them. And because of that, they find themselves in Gethsemane. They find themselves in the most difficult, trying position of their entire lives. And whether it be you who's being affected by that or a loved one or a friend or maybe even an acquaintance, many times our lives are touched when we find the Gethsemane of disease. But not only that, I think about those who are in Gethsemane out of sheer difficulty. Their situation in life, the place where they have to live and breathe every day, whether it be because of the lack of finances or because of the troubles that just come in from the outside life, the things that they have to deal with, whether it be in the schoolhouses or the workplaces or out in the community. Friends, there are people all around us that we find their lives are much, much more difficult than ours. You may have been or may even be in the moment in Gethsemane because 
of that. But then I encounter people many times, especially members of the Lord's church, sad as it is, who are not in Gethsemane because of a death or disease, not because of, of if you will, some definite difficulty in their life, but simply because of discouragement. They are just absolutely discouraged with the way that life is. Now, maybe it be because of outward causes, but friends, sometimes in the life of a Christian, at least, it's because of inward problems. It's because that person does not feel or perhaps does not believe that they can accomplish things in life because of their position. Maybe they look to themselves as a Christian as being some kind of a failure or some type of a, a downtrodden person. And they cause themselves to be discouraged. But here's the thing about it. I have discovered time and time again as I've studied my Bible in nearly all, if not every situation, if we'll search the Scriptures, if we'll dwell within them, we'll look carefully at the things that occur within the Scriptures. We're going to find ourselves oftentimes finding answers to our questions, finding answers to that of death, finding answers to that of difficulty or discouragement or disease, being able to recover from the things, those things by using a pattern set forth by God. So with that in mind, I want you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, we find one of the three out of the four gospel accounts where we meet with our Lord and Savior Himself in that physical Gethsemane. As great as it was physically, as beautiful as that garden was perhaps in the daytime, it was just as fearful and scary at night. It brought the terrible troubles and trials that He would endure even on that evening. Now, you can put in your minds at least as parallels to this, Mark chapter 14, or uh, things that reveal much more insight perhaps than Matthew's account. Luke chapter 22 will expand our knowledge upon this account, and we'll mention some references at least from those. But I want you to understand what it's like to be in Gethsemane, the things that we find there and how we are going to endure it. As we go through those trying times. Notice with me the scriptures here. Matthew chapter 26 beginning in verse 36. We'll read the account. The Bible here says. And then cometh Jesus with them. And to a place called Gethsemane. Now that just simply means the place of the wine press. And he saith unto his disciples. Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here with me, and watch with me. And he went a little farther, verse 39, and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thou will be done. And he cometh unto his disciples, and findeth them asleep. And he saith unto Peter, What could you not watch with me but one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. In verse 42, And he went again a second time and prayed, saying, O Father, if this cup may pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, and their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away and prayed a third time the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep now, take your rest. Behold, your hour is at hand. 
and the Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Now, friends, as we enter into that garden, as we consider the things from here, I want to give you five, maybe six things if time allows that will allow myself and perhaps you and your times of Gethsemane to simply survive. Notice with me, one of the things we find in Gethsemane is that is that in Gethsemane, we find sorrow. The essence of this is basically this. Jesus expressed his sorrow in Gethsemane. Dropping back up, if you would, in the scriptures to verse 27, specifically the latter phrase says, speaking of Jesus, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Verse 38 added to that. And he saith to them, my soul, watch it, is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Friends, in Gethsemane, whatever the cause, whatever the situation, we oftentimes meet, as he did, with sorrow. Now, the only thing I want to learn about that is that it's okay. It's okay to be sorry. It's okay to have sorrow in our hearts, to find ourselves at times, whether we be ashamed of it, maybe we have to duck into a closet or go into a side area, whatever it is, that's all right. It's okay to be sorrowful. You know, I was told as a child, and perhaps you were likewise, and especially young men or boys were told this, don't cry because boys don't cry. Friends, boys may not cry, but true men do. Men like the Lord. And what I understand about Jesus when I consider Him, I understand that He absolutely was God in a body, as I call Him. I understand that He did come down, John 1 and 14, and dwell among us and be put in bodily or fleshly form to dwell among us. But at the same time, I need not separate Him off as some eternal being and that alone. As a matter of fact, this is one of several occasions where we find Jesus in the pit of sorrow. Where we find Jesus prostrate even on the ground as he prayed, worried, concerned about the souls and men of other people. And sometimes even their situations. We often mistakenly, it's not literally the shortest verse in the Bible, but in the English it is. You're familiar with John 11 and verse 35. The two words go together, Jesus wept. How is it that Jesus could weep? How is it that the very Son of God, the one who must have had the foreknowledge and the foresight to see the end result of these things, how could He ever weep? How could Jesus, when He went to the tomb of Lazarus, as represented there in John 11 and 35, how could He weep knowing that only in a few moments He would raise that young man up, bring him out of the grave, have the grave cloths to be stripped off of him, not only to bring this man to life, but to bring life unto many that were around that saw this man live again, that were inspired and moved to know that He was God by that. He knew the end result. But He wept. He's here in the garden. The Bible says literally that he had made himself lay upon the ground. The Greek language here implies not that he was kneeling, but he was laying flat of his face. He was sorrowful, exceedingly sorrowful and heavy in himself. Again, how could that be? Friends, the Hebrews writer reveals something to us about that. Hebrews 4 and verse 15, speaking of Jesus, considering him as our high priest, it says, we have not an high priest which cannot, has not met with the infirmities of men. That is to say that Jesus Christ is our high priest, deals with the same emotions, the same feelings, 
the same concerns as every other man. And so as we go through Gethsemane in our lives, whatever the situation, whatever the cause, know it's okay to find sorrow. It was found in Gethsemane here second. Not only in Gethsemane do we find sorrow, but just looking back at the text, we also find what I would call support. And that is that in Gethsemane, in this sorrowful time, Jesus would typically lean upon his friends. The scriptures revealed unto us, going back up into verse 37 to read the first phrase or so says, And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee. We don't have to wonder who the two sons of Zebedee were. They're commonly known and typically known as James and John. Mark's account of this, Mark chapter 14 and verse 33, reveals unto us those two men by name. And oftentimes we know about Jesus. You know, he surrounded himself with basically 12 disciples who would later be known as apostles. But in amongst them, he seemingly had even his inner circle. Friends, there are times in Gethsemane when we find ourselves being in those places when we need, we need, we need support. Here's the thing. I know in my life, at least, in Gethsemane and difficult, trying, troublesome times, sometimes I'm too ashamed to ask for help. Oftentimes I'm guilty of looking looking in at myself and seeing my problems, seeing my situation, and really just doing more to try to hide that, to hide those sorrowful emotions and to hide those needs. But Jesus didn't do that. No, here in the text, Jesus understood, even as the proverbial writer pen in uh, Proverbs 17, verse 17, spoke of a brother and said that a brother is one whose friend, I'm sorry, is one who sticketh closer than a brother. You fast forward in that on a little bit farther in the book of Proverbs, I think it's chapter 18 and verse 24, and we find out how a brother is one who is born, literally brought into this world for adversity. The difficulty arises, one, when I get in a position that I'm not willing to ask for support. I'm not willing to ask for help. Friends, that's a part of being in Gethsemane. That is a part of what Jesus would do even then. But then there's a secondary problem that arises. This is not the problem of the individual. It's the problem of those outside. You see, one thing I do note in this is that when Jesus entered into Gethsemane, at this point at least, he did not have to come to that place alone. He did not have to enter into Gethsemane knowing what was coming. He had already told his disciples in the upper room just a few hours before what was going to take place, what was going to befall him even that same evening. And at this point at least, at least these three, Peter, James, and John, had the willingness to be those friends, to be there with him, to support and uphold him. You see, I found myself guilty in more than one occasion, seeing someone from a distance, finding them in Gethsemane, finding them having a difficult time, and I look and I say, you know what, I, I think it'd be better if I just stayed away. I think it'd be better and easier on them if, if they learned to handle this or deal with this on their own. That's never the way it ought to be. And when I think about Gethsemane, I find a place of sorrow. That is, Jesus himself was sorrowful. When I think about Gethsemane, I find a place of support. That is, Jesus leaned upon his friends at Gethsemane. But I notice something else here from the scripture. And that is that I also find, in light of those friends, a place of sympathy. 
Go back with me and reread a couple of more verses. Verse 41 said, as he's speaking to Peter, James, and John, verse 40 proves that. He says, watch and pray, watch this now, that ye enter not into temptation. Why is that, Lord? The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 45 goes on and says, and to his disciples, he says, sleep now, take your rest. Behold the hours of hand when the Son of Man should be betrayed. Friends, when I think about this, I realize very quickly and evidently that Jesus himself was a sympathetic individual. If I were the Lord, if I were in his situation, I have to look at it from my human eyes, looking back some 2,000 some odd years, I would have to admit, if I were honest about it, if I were to meet with the, the terrible faith that he was about to endure, the things that he was about to suffer, I would probably say to my friends, you know what, you think you've got it bad, you look at what I've got to deal with. No. No, he was a man of sympathy. He was a man that in the midst of all of his worries and all of his concerns, he simply spoke to his disciples and he said, you need to watch. You need to be praying. You need to be sure that you enter not into temptation. He was concerned about their spiritual lives then, wasn't he? That ought to be our primary concern. You know, in Gethsemane, when I find myself in the lowest pits of life and I find people around me and I think, boy, they've got it made compared to what I do. They've got it much easier compared to what I do. When I can stand, I said can, not always do, but when I can stand tall, when I can lift my head high, I can take and reach out and try to contact them and influence them spiritually by giving glory to God. Now, we are much like Paul Harvey would speak, and we know the rest of the story, really. We know that it was in Gethsemane, sure enough, there were those three disciples that were right there close to him for a moment. We also know the other disciples there, the others that were behind, were, were also assembled. We know that when Judas would come in and betray him, as would occur in the very next verse at the ending of the passage we just read, verse 47, as Judas would come in, we know that all the disciples, every one of them at that point, would run like scared rabbits. But yet even though Jesus would even know that, even though he being God could have foreseen and already warned of that, he still warned them not to fall into that. I think back in my life, and you've all known these people, and I, I use this as an example when I read across this passage often, but my wife had a great-grandmother. Now, this was not even a physical blood grandmother. It's a hard and confusing thing for even me. But her name was Ruth Scott, and she was probably one of the finest women I had ever met in my life. I grew up attending services with her at Munford, known of her my entire life, later met Jennifer, married her, discovered this was that grand, great-grandmother and all. But, but anyway, as we lived below her, we oftentimes, as she was dying with cancer, that was her Gethsemane, by the way. We would go into her home to visit her, and I'll tell you what happened every single time we walked in the door. We could come through her front door, pass through the kitchen, through the living room. As we're going down the hall, we could hear her in the back room moaning and groaning and, and enduring all sorts of pain. But if we ever walked in that room and said, Mama Ruth, how are you? She would say, how are you? I don't think we ever got an answer. 
Matter of fact, we had family members, not not myself and Jennifer, but other family members who, for whatever reason, had just kind of left her alone. It had just let her go years gone by, had not seen her, had not called her, not spoken. Folks that she loved dearly, and she would every single time ask, how is so-and-so? And we would say, well, who, he or she, they're okay, and we're thinking the whole time, and they're also low down and dirty because they don't care about you. But she cared about them. Friends, I don't know where she got that. But I like to think, and I can almost believe being the godly woman that she was, she got it from this passage right here. What do we find in Gethsemane? Friends, we do find sorrow, true enough. Friends, we do find in Gethsemane support, but we also find sympathy for other people. You've often heard it told, and you know it too if you've experienced it. When you find someone in, for lack of better English, a worse state than you, Suddenly your burdens are lifted. That's what Jesus did. But not only that, in Gethsemane do we find that sympathy. Friends, not to, not to contradict something I've already said, but we also find in Gethsemane solitude. Going back up to reread some of this, the Bible tells us in verse 36, the beginning of this, and he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful, even very heavy. And he said to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even to death. Watch what he tells them now. Tarry ye here. Why is that? Tarry ye here and watch with me. And then verse 39, the first phrase is what I'm really focusing on. And when he had went a little farther... You notice how Jesus specifically told his disciples, you stay here and I'll go there. And we really, again, we do not have to be in the shadow of darkness as to exactly how far or perhaps how far Jesus went. Luke's account, Luke 22 and verse 41, if I recall it correctly, tells us that Jesus, when he left them on this occasion, when a stone's cast, from them. And I understand we could we could argue of how large or small the stone may have been, how powerful the arm may have been that would cast it. But even in the basic of senses, we would say that stone's cast would have been enough distance perhaps to put time and space between he and his disciples so that they could be separated him by maybe a half a football field or so. Why? Friends, the reason we find solitude in Gethsemane is because there was a time in his life, and yea, there is a time in ours when we actually, for a time, need to be alone. We need to be alone. Now, one of the things that we often do, and, and we have to be careful with this, and others have to be careful with us, we, we just have to be tactful to one another, but Oftentimes when something occurs in a life, something tragic, something terrible such as death, we come in and we want to be there. We want to support this individual, support the families, the friends that are left behind, and we'll spend time with them and, and we'll give them every ounce of support they need and we'll allow them to deal with their sorrow perhaps. And we sometimes will even go along with them being sympathetic toward our needs, but we rarely take time to allow them or rarely do they take time to have Solitude. I think about another influential person in my life, and this was my grandmother. And I can remember how when my grandfather passed away, he died also with cancer, as Jennifer's great-grandmother did, but 
when he passed away, I can remember we went down. Obviously, when he passed, we stayed for the funeral and, and had plans to stay for days and days. And everybody had already made the deal of, I'll stay here and you'll be there. And finally, she said, go home. I don't know where she got that. Jesus knew all about it. Why would anyone choose in a situation like this? Why would anyone choose perhaps to be left alone? Because he wasn't alone. No, Jesus wasn't alone. Even though those disciples were separated and stones cast, even though there was time and space between them, he was not alone. We need to remember when we enter into Gethsemane ourselves, we need to keep in mind that we ought to take some of that time to be alone. We need to also be hospitable to be careful that we allow those individuals, whomever they are, to also take their time to be alone. Don't make them feel forsaken. Don't allow them to feel like they've been left behind. But when they can spend time alone with God, they'll be better. Well, I find in Gethsemane not only that of sorrow, support, sympathy, and solitude. Then I find in this one here, I'm only putting it in this order because it's the way it falls in the text. But I also find supplication here. That's a big word that I wouldn't use every day except for it's the most specific word to describe the type of prayer that he committed himself to do. There are numerous times, numerous times throughout the gospel accounts when we read of Jesus, how he would go and he would take time to pray. Oftentimes it was behind some of the greatest, most victorious events, some of the greatest accomplishments, miracles even, that he had committed to doing when men were coming around him in droves, when they were spending time with him, following him, encouraging him all the way, he would take time to pray. But then more times than not, as recorded here, and we find the longest prayer of the entire New Testament recorded in John chapter 17. He took time to pray then. And that specifically was a prayer of supplication. The word supplication is a bigger word that just simply means to beg or to beckon upon God for supply. What in the world could he mean? Friends, I would have us to know, I would have to understand myself that God can and will, if we only ask, supply all of our needs. Doesn't matter the situation. You say, God, I have endured a family member in their death. God can help. You say, God, I myself am in the midst of a difficult situation. God can help. God, I'm in the midst of, of disease. God can help. I'm in the midst of being discouraged. I, I've just about given up on living the Christian life. God can help. Now, specifically, what did he pray? The prayers are recorded here. We've read across them. We'll reread them now. Verse 39 said, When he went a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Verse 42 adds, And when he went away again a second time, he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Verse 44 doesn't specifically go into words, but it says and he left them and he went away and prayed a third time the same words. 
Friends, if you mark in your Bibles, you can easily find these. There are five times in about these ten verses where the word pray or prayer is used because that's, to me, the main focus of all this. Again, I don't put prayer or, if you will, supplication behind anything because it's of lesser importance. I don't place it there because of that. I put it there because this is where the Scriptures reveal it to us. How important is prayer? Jesus told his disciples in the multitudes, Luke 18 and verse 1, just this for example, he said, men ought to always pray and faint not. Literally to consider that verse for what it says, Jesus is basically turning that nutshell over to say, if you want to fail, if you want to faint, just forget prayer. But yet prayer is that which lifts people up. Prayer is that which can put people in standings with God, can allow people to arrive at God's help, God's support. And in Gethsemane, he prayed. I think about those words and it makes me consider exactly the purpose of prayer. We're told 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. James 5.16 tells us the effectual, and he adds there even the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Praise there does a lot of good. Ephesians 3 and verse 20, if I ever doubt, and I say, well, but God in this Gethsemane, in this situation, in that place, I don't see the comfort in prayer. I don't feel you there with me. Ephesians 3.20 says, unto him, that's speaking of God, unto him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly, watch this phrase, above all that which we ask or think. Basically, whatever I think God can do, He can do more. And I think because I trust God's Word, He created the world, that's, that's enough. But He could do more. And He's willing to. But friends, imagine that I am like the Lord here. I've entered in, or you have entered into Gethsemane, and you found sorrow. Certainly, certainly we all can and do. Now imagine after finding that sorrow, I would I begin to look around me and I realize, you know what, I'm not alone in this. I have support. I have friends. I have fellow Christians primarily that are with me. They're there to help. But imagine I'm so concerned about their lives that it helps me with mine, so I'm sympathetic toward their needs. Then imagine at one point I say, you know what? I need to be alone with God. Give me solitude. Let me be separate from you. And I hit my proverbial, if not literal, faces there upon the dust as I pray to God and beg of Him for supplication. Give me, God, what I need, what I can have. You know what? None of that, none of that would help me unless I also came in Gethsemane and found submission. That's not only the final word, that's the important one. All three of these prayers, to reread them again, the two that are recorded, the one that is added there, says as he spoke to his father, Oh, my father, 
if conditionally it be possible, let, allow this cup to pass from me. That's important. He added there in verse 42, Oh, Father, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it. Verse 44 recorded, he said the same words. I would imply the exact words. But behind all three of those prayers, verse 39 as it's recorded, 42, and then mentioned again in verse 44, he ended with a phrase, if it be thou will. You know that, that's often, as terrible as it is to think of, that's really what I do not typically find in my Gethsemane. Sorrow's easy to find. The others are, are, are fairly simple to find. I can look here and there and I can find that. I can make solitude out of any point of life. But to find submission. Literally here, Jesus accepted the will of God. It's terrible to think that Jesus Christ on this earth my Savior and yours. He went to the garden. He being Jesus prayed to God. It just allows me to understand how much I need to pray. If even God himself prayed to the Father. But as he prayed. He still gave the will to his Father. To think of what he would endure. To think of what he would be involved in. In the matter of really a few moments. As a matter of fact. I think it is Mark's account. That says as he spoke the words. Those are the words that we see in verse 45. Sleep now take thy rest. Behold the hours at hand. As he spoke the words. As the words were coming out of his mouth. The soldiers. The band of soldiers. Not like the movies. Not eight or ten. Perhaps upwards of five hundred soldiers. Led by Judas. The one he had loved. The one he had cared for as they rose over the hill and as he knew all of that as he would be crucified for not my sin or your sin but the sins of every man not in my time but in every time he could still say father not my will but thy will be done If there were a key that unlocked the door to surviving, for lack of better terms, Gethsemane. That's it. And say to God, God, I, I'm not I'm not excited about my situation. I'm not excited about my emotions and, and the things that I'm enduring, the things that I'm having to deal with. But Father, whatever thy will is, let it be done. I ask the question again then of all of us, as individuals and collectively, uh, have you been, have I been to Gethsemane? The answer is yes. Uh, would it be the, po the possibility at least be there that if I would endure in this life any longer, this side of eternity, that I would once again fall into Gethsemane's Grasp, yes. But if I remember that in Gethsemane, I do find sorrow. 
in Gethsemane, I do find support, sympathy, solitude, supplication. Friends, in Gethsemane, I need to close all of my thoughts with the sheer submission to God that He deserves. Now that comes to a real position even now then. It may be the case that there's some among us this morning and we're so glad that you're here if you are. You may not necessarily be in Gethsemane in the moment. But it is time for you to learn how to submit to God. It is the will of God that you would hear His Word. It's the only way to have faith. Romans 10, 17 tells us, So then faith cometh how? By hearing. And hearing comes by the Word of God. It is the case that even while Jesus Himself, the man who endured all of this, while He stood on earth, He told His disciples, Except ye believe that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. John 8 and 24. We have to submit to that. It is the same Lord and Savior who stood before the multitudes. Luke 13, 3 and verse 5 emphasizes that again as it repeats it word for word and says, but I tell you, Nate, except, that means there is no other exception, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Acts 17 and verse 30 adds to that thought at least, Luke writing it, pinning the words for God says that God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. It takes submission to do that. It takes submitting the will of God. Jesus commanded Matthew 10, 32 and 33 that we would confess His name before men so He can confess ours before the Father. Paul wrote into the Romans and told them it was with the mouth that confession was made. He actually added there unto or to the point of in the direction of salvation. The confession won't save you even though the world often says that it would. No, but the confession brings you toward what Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, a great act of submission. And he said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Peter was inspired to write later, 1 Peter 3, 21, <coughs> baptism doth now also save us. Friends, what I'm saying through all of that, that's scripture speaking. Submit to the will of God this morning. Gethsemane or no, uh, submit to the will of God this morning. Be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. But maybe if you're more like I am, you have obeyed God initially. You found yourself living life and living it as faithful as you think that you can, but maybe you fall and maybe it's the Gethsemanes of life that have caused you to fall. Why not come home through prayer and repentance even in light of that this morning? Coming back and laying yourself prostrate on the ground before the very throne of God, submitting again unto His will. Why not do that? While together we stand and sing this invitation song.